Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 4, Genesis chapters 3 and 4. Okay, let's get into our lesson. Today we're going to study Genesis chapter 3, so let's just jump right into our Scripture reading. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal which Adonai God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman answered the serpent, Well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You are neither to eat from it nor touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, It is not true that you will surely die, because God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it had a pleasing appearance, that the tree was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. They heard the voice of Adonai God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai God among the trees in the garden. And Adonai God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I'm naked. So I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I ordered you not to eat? And the man replied, Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. (laughs) And Adonai God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman answered, Well, the serpent tricked me, so I ate it. And Adonai God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and eat dust as long as you live. I'll put animosity between you and the woman, between your descendant and her descendant. He'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. And the woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. You'll bring forth children in pain. Your desire will be towards your husband, but he'll rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to what your wife said and ate from the tree about which I gave you the order, you are not to eat from it. The ground is cursed on your account. You will work hard to eat from it as long as you live. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat field plants. You will eat bread by the sweat of your forehead till you return to the ground. For you were taken out of it, your dust you will return to dust. The man called his wife Hava, life, because she was the mother of all living. Adonai God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And Adonai God said, See, 
The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now to prevent his putting out his hand and taking also from the tree of life, eating, living forever, therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Famous, famous story, huh? The great Jewish rabbis and sages of long ago point to some rather inter- something rather interesting in verse 1 about the serpent. The serpent was different from the wild animals God had created. He wasn't even one of the wild animals. He was not just craftier than wild animals. This being could talk. Look carefully at the wording of our verses. Our English language, Western culture minds, tend to read in the word other, making the verse read than any other wild animal. That's not what the scripture in the original Hebrew says. It just says than any wild animal. Apparently the serpent was not even categorized as a wild animal. The serpent was unique. A separate, a distinct living being, but in a very negative way. Now, did the spirit of Satan overtake and possess a poor, unwitting snake? Or was perhaps the snake a physical form that Satan took on? Different, apparently appealing. A form willed by his own doing? in order to be visible and and so that he might communicate with Adam and Eve? Satan is able to counterfeit pretty much anything. And I agree with many of the ancient sages that the serpent could well have been Satan's attempt to mimic God by creating life, counterfeit life. Apparently, at first, the serpent was even able to go around on legs because we see that God cursed the serpent with one of the consequences that he'd have to crawl on his belly from this point onward. And of course it was that old serpent that led the woman and then the man to rebel against God. Notice, however, that the serpent was located at this time inside the Garden of Eden in a holy place. See, now this is one more example of the garden, a physical, four-dimensional place, being a parallel of heaven. And heaven is a non-physical, spiritual place outside of our four-dimensional universe. Even what went on in the garden is a parallel of what went on in heaven. Because we know that Satan was at one time where? In heaven. A special spiritual being. The most beautiful spiritual creature there ever was next to God Himself. Now, I don't want to call Him an angel because there are many other varieties of heavenly beings than angels. Cherubim and seraphim are spiritual beings, but they are not angels. 
They're different. They're even more powerful spirit beings than angels. And Satan, called Lucifer when he resided in heaven, rebelled against God and was cast down to earth for that rebellion. So here's the story in Genesis 3 of the serpent's expulsion from the garden. So we have essentially the same story. Only instead of it taking place in a purely spiritual setting in heaven, it's taking place in a physical setting in the Garden of Eden. We have the serpent, a very special creature, different than all other living creatures, walking upright in the garden, living in the presence of God. Then he rebels, his form changes, he's expelled from the garden. A complete parallel of Lucifer being cast out of heaven. The reality of duality at work. Satan begins his onslaught by telling Adam and Eve that God's a liar. In verse 3. In verse 3, after God has instructed Adam that if he eats from the tree of good and evil, he will die, the serpent said, it's not true. It's not so. You're not going to die. And as a result of such blasphemy, the serpent's cast out of the garden. More than that, he is cast down into the dust, such that he now has to crawl on his belly. Satan was first cast out of a spiritual realm, heaven, and exiled to a physical realm, the earth. In Hebrew, the word for earth or soil, meaning the dust, is Adam Ha. Next, the serpent was cast out of the garden, cursed to crawl on his belly in the Adam Ah, the dust of the ground. Here is another exact parallel, another demonstration of the reality of duality. This event of Adam and Eve's unauthorized eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is what Christianity calls the fall of man, or the fall from grace, or just the fall. Now, very interestingly, the Jewish rabbis of old look at this event with a little different slant. As Christians, evangelical Christians, because all denominations don't see it this way, we see the fall as the event whereby man's relationship to God was broken. And evil came alive in a way that had deep spiritual consequences and physical consequences. It was that moment when sin didn't just enter into the world, it became part of our human nature, part of our our fiber, maybe even our genetic material. And as a result of our sin nature, we die. Not just physically, but spiritually and therefore eternally. Therefore, we need a Savior. One who will deliver and rescue us and restore us to a condition equal to what Adam was before he sinned. The Jews, on the other hand, see what happened in the garden as a sort of liberation. That is, man was now given the ability and responsibility to make choices. 
Prior to Adam and Eve's act of rebellion, they just simply did what God said. Almost robotically, in many of the sages' view. Because there was no other choice. Why? Because there existed for Adam and Eve nothing but good. And good was a single pathway laid out by God with no alternative. But with the introduction of evil by the serpent, mankind gained a kind of freedom. We could now choose for ourselves whether to love God and obey Him, or we could choose to follow our own deceived ways, our infected hearts, and do as we wished. And to a degree, mankind could even choose just how to follow God. That is, each could work out their own salvation. And as a result of that view, for the, view, for the Jewish people, a Savior has not generally been about a person being restored as an individual to a right relationship with God, nor has it been about having our sin natures destroyed and then our being recreated with a new nature. For a Hebrew, a Savior, a Messiah, has always been about making the Hebrews the dominant world culture. A culture defined by God, lived out as the kingdom of God, that revolved around the ways of the one true God that's taught in the Torah. Salvation was seen more or less as a national issue, and the Savior as the national leader of the cause. But this Savior would necessarily be a man. In fact, he'd be an offspring of the greatest warrior king that Israel ever had, King David. It's no wonder that so relatively few Hebrews accepted Yeshua as their Messiah. Because they, he, he just didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit the purpose that the ancient sages had built for the Messiah. Let's look at verse 8. I don't want to belabor what might seem to be a trifling point, but I can assure you that what I'm about to put before you has kept many a rabbi and many a Christian scholar awake at night trying to discern its meaning. And the question is, was God actually physically walking in the garden? Better yet, does God have any of the physical human characteristics that allow him to jump for joy, weep bitter tears, swing a sword, and other attributes and actions that we recognize as needing a physical body to perform? What, what are we to make out of words like this that are used in the Bible? In general, evangelical Christians have a ready answer every time a physical-like attribute of God is spoken of as making an appearance. We say it must have been Jesus. Perhaps. If one reads only the New Testament and ignores the Old Testament, then most certainly Jesus would be a logical, though not entirely satisfactory, answer. The Jews have a alternative points of view as to what these human emotions and physical-like characteristics described to men mean to indicate, I rather describe to God mean to indicate. Now I'm not here to convince you of any particular answer because I just don't have a problem 
accepting some things as simply mysteries because they're beyond the human intellect's ability to ponder them. It's quite the opposite, actually, because more and more, I have a lot of problems with the very simplistic answers that we so easily seem to have accepted over the years from our pastors and rabbis and priests. Answers to some complex and sometimes very vague statements that we find in the Bible. Man has a tendency to want to fill in the blanks when something in the Bible isn't made readily apparent. And you know, that can be very dangerous. Now while there's no single Jewish point of view on much of anything, any more than there is a single Christian viewpoint, what I'm about to read to you is of general agreement among rabbis and Jewish sages with only a minority of dissenting views. Maimonides was perhaps one of the greatest and most revered Jewish scholars of all time. He lived in the 12th century AD and rather than paraphrase his thoughts on this matter, his view is concise enough that I just want to quote it to you. He says this, Since matters concerning bodily experience are such that all words connected to this mentioned in the Torah and in the prophets are exemplary and figures of speech. Examples of this are he who sits in the heavens laughs and uh, that they provoked me, Elohim, to anger and as the Lord rejoiced, etc. The sages of old said that the Torah is phrased in our terms. In Jeremiah 7.9 it says, Do they provoke me to anger? Whereas in Malachi 3.6 it says, For I am the Lord and I do not change. If God really was sometimes angry, sometimes joyful, then he would be changing. Such characteristics are found only in the dark and gloomy existence of having a body, which lives in huts of mud created from dust. But God is higher and he's raised above all this. He continues in another commentary. These phrases are in line with the level of understanding of people, humans, who can only comprehend physical existence. And so the Torah speaks in terms that we can understand. For example, when it says, If I whet my glittering sword, does God really carry a sword? Does it glitter? Does he actually use a physical sword to kill? Such phrases are figurative. Now I'm going to let you wrestle with all that for yourselves. The point is that we need to be reluctant about going around subscribing to God our human attributes. God is not a man. He's spirit. Yet how else is a being so far above us who operates outside of our realm of time and space supposed to communicate with us if it's not on our terms. And yes, of course, somebody is now going to say, well, Yeshua was God, and he certainly was a physical being, that is, he was God with human attributes. That's all true. 
But Jesus was also a real flesh and blood man born from a woman. Very specific woman, Mary, who had to come from the line of King David. Although Christ's father was God, Christ was 100% human. But he was also 100% God. He wasn't a 50-50 bar. That he wasn't part man and part God, nor was he sometimes man and sometimes God. I don't know about all you, but I can't get my mind to quite picture this or comprehend just what all that means and how it all works. But I know it's true. This is one of those mysteries that just is not explainable in any term that a human can deal with. It's a God thing. The Bible is full of these kinds of God things. Here's yet another one of those difficult God things. The Midrash Rabbah makes a very interesting point by making a connection between some words of King Solomon and what happened regarding the eating of the forbidden fruit in Genesis. In Ecclesiastes 1.18, the Holy Scriptures say this, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. At 63 years old, I can tell you that's absolutely true. At 23, I probably wouldn't have said that. The Midrash Rabbah goes on to explain that in Genesis 3, 6, Hava, Eve, discloses that there were three things about that tree that caused this irresistible urge to well up in her. First, the fruit on it apparently looked delicious to eat. Second, the tree itself was beautiful. Third, that the partaking of the tree would make one wise. That is, she was seeking, what she was seeking most was wisdom. Look at the name of the tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Her act was largely about acquiring knowledge. And as we grow older in life, we indeed find Solomon's statement is true. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. When we talk about seeing life through the eyes of a child, we mean that most children haven't yet learned about all the bad things of life yet. They still believe that if you just work hard enough, dream big enough, behave good enough, that nothing bad will happen to you. Children have not yet learned that people aren't, don't always do what they're supposed to do. Or that some people for no discernible reason will hurt you. 
Some people may even take your life and freedom from you for no good reason. We call that the innocence of childhood. How is this innocence eventually taken from them? Knowledge. So knowledge and wisdom brings with it its own set of problems. Yet it is a human desire, as with Eve, to seek knowledge and wisdom. Now, can we accept that all knowledge is not necessarily good for us? Apparently not. Because humans seem to have an insatiable appetite for it. It seems that there is knowledge that humans, at least humans that don't have God's Spirit in them, cannot handle or properly discern. It is said that we're in the information age, and we have been for about 25 years. Is the world a better place because of all this knowledge? Or does all this information available at our fingertips seem to produce at least as much evil as it does good? Are our lives more peaceful and meaningful because of this vast expansion of knowledge? The Midrash Rabbah goes on to explain that there was another fundamental at work in the story of mankind's fall. Havad distorted God's instructions to her husband, Adam, or Adam added to God's command about not eating from the forbidden fruit when he instructed Havad. Because when we look at Genesis 2.17, we see God say this to Adam. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat, you'll die. But when the serpent asked Hava why it was she was prohibited from eating of that particular tree, she responded in Genesis 3.3 with, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden has said, a God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Where did the notion of you can't touch it come from? Somebody, either Adam or Eve, added it to God's decree. The Midrash points this out by saying in Proverbs 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words lest he reprove you and you be be shown a liar. This is exactly the situation here with Eve or both Adam and Eve because some words were added. That little phrase and it proved them to be liars. Man has a real tendency to add to God's word even more than subtracting from it. And the old serpent knew the instant Hava or maybe Adam lied by embellishing what God's instruction actually was, he had him. It's really dicey when you start adding to God's word. The Hebrews did it and do it. The church does it every day. Yet it all has come to no good. 
Okay, on to something else. In verse 15, we get this messianic, very prophetic, but if you're honest about it, also very vague statement in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Yet here we have, so very early on in the Bible, just a peek at God's plan for, for restoring humanity to Himself. I have to say honestly, if this was all I had to go on in Moses or Davis, uh, David's day, I don't think I'd have ever remotely seen it as a messianic prophecy of deliverance. Rather, I think I'd just see it as confusing. It's significantly easier in hindsight with Messiah having come and gone to recognize these and other verses of the Old Testament for what they are. A prophecy of our coming Redeemer. Sometimes, you know, we like to criticize or look down on the early Hebrews for not understanding what God's plan was, but it is absolutely typical of man then as now to only believe God after the fact. No matter how many prophets God sent to Israel, few Israelites ever believed what those men had to say. And the consequences were terrible. In fact, look at us. Yeshua's church today. The Lord has told us unequivocally that when Israel returns as a nation and when Jerusalem is retaken from the Gentiles, things which have both occurred recently from a historical standpoint, that's the sign that we're living in the last days. In fact, the last of the last days. We're told that Jerusalem and the land of Israel will become a cup of trembling for the whole world. And it most certainly has become that. But when in all history was Jerusalem at any other time a cause for anybody but the Israelites to tremble in fear? Oh, the Jews have aggravated the daylights out of the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Romans, but never was Jerusalem the center of the world or a place where what went on there could destabilize the whole globe. But it most certainly has become that way in our lifetimes. We are told that when we see all these things happening, we're supposed to look up for our salvation and the end of the world as we know it is near. We have watched these events unfold before our very eyes. We have been forewarned in our own holy scriptures that this time in history would come. And yet only a relative few within Christ's ecclesia have paid very much attention to it. Let us vow not to be blind any longer to this incredible time in which we live, nor oblivious to what it means, nor passive in how we respond. In general, 
When we turn a blind or a disinterested eye towards these events, you know what? We're behaving just like the Hebrews of old. When God forewarned them of what was coming, and they just sniffed at it. They went on about their lives as usual, and the result was devastating for them. Note in verse 24, that God made animal skin clothing for Adam and Eve. Why animal skins for garments? Maybe they lasted longer than vegetables, so you could you didn't have to make them so often. I mean, they'd already been making clothing out of vegetation for themselves. It seems to have done the trick, but apparently it wasn't good enough as far as God was concerned. And this is because Adam and Eve made their own coverings. And God hadn't. See, man cannot create his own covering for sin. Here we see the end results of the first blood sacrifice in the Bible. Where do you get an animal skin? From a dead animal. Was there death of anything up till now? Seems not. Though these animals, whose skin was used to clothe Adam and Hava, didn't die from old age. They had to be killed. So here we have another fundamental God principle set down for all time that we must pay attention to. The only suitable payment for sin is the shedding of innocent blood. God had to let one of his own created and innocent creatures die to pay for Adam and Eve's rebellion. Living creatures created from the same dust of the earth as humans given animation and life from God's own breath just as we're humans are now having to forfeit their lives in order to atone for the rebelliousness of human beings. And this is so that human beings can have some relationship with God, although not to the extent that Adam and Eve originally did. See, when we hear this term covering in this vein, that is, that shed blood was a covering for man's sin, This is where the notion of blood being a covering comes from. These animal skins literally covered Adam and Eve's nakedness, their sin. And the sin it covered was in this instance their rebellion of stealing from the tree of knowledge and good and evil and now sin lived in them and it had to be covered. And yet when Hava lied and she told that old serpent that she was not allowed to even touch that tree, she had not yet eaten the fruit. She had not yet gained the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. So whether it was Adam's lie or Hava's lie, Where did their notion to lie come from if the fall of man, the eating of that fruit, 
hadn't occurred yet. Hmm, major problem here. The ancient Hebrew sages, they have a take on this. And it is that God created man with both a good and evil side to him. They call it a good and evil inclination. In Hebrew, the phrases are Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara. The good, Tov, inclination, and the evil, the Ra, inclination. So according to this view, Hava or Adam or both were just acting out their inherent evil inclinations when they first added to God's command by including the words and not to touch it and then second when they deliberately disobeyed his command by eating the fruit that God had unambiguously told them not to eat yes Hava tries to deflect blame and says the serpent tricked her is that really the case? all the serpent did was ask a question And Ava's response was not the truth. Once she told a lie, the gate was open and the devil took the next step. Disobedience. See, this really stings a lot of Christian Christian doctrine on the subject of evil and the fall of man, but it's hard not to see that at the least the Hebrew sages have a pretty good point. After all, if God created everything and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was His creation put by Him into the garden that He created, then evil must have predated mankind. Did evil just self-generate? Did evil just appear out of nowhere? Or was evil actually part of creation? We're not going to debate that headache-producing subject today. But we will look more closely at the subject of good and evil quite extensively, actually, when we get to Genesis chapter 6. If we're honest about what Scripture tells us and what it does not tell us, then the pre-existence of evil cannot be taken as a simple, cut-and-dried, easy-on-our-conscience, doctrinized matter. In verse 22, we get another piece to this puzzle of just who God is and what His attributes consist of. For we get this statement in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It goes on. And that statement corresponds with another earlier one back in Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we have two places in the Bible early on in which God speaks of Himself as us. Note also that Adam and Eve were removed from the holy place 
of the Garden of Eden. Mankind was now separated from God, physically and spiritually. And God put an angelic guard on the approach to the tree of life to keep Adam and Eve away from it since they've already proven they're not trustworthy. God couldn't allow them near it. In fact, they couldn't even be allowed to stay inside the garden anymore. God cannot allow uncleanness and sin anywhere near His perfect holiness. Notice again that direction, east. God placed His angelic guard at the eastern part of the garden. Apparently there was an entrance into the garden in the east. So we now have the garden in the eastern part of the land of Eden and the angel placed in the east end of the garden. We're going to see a whole bunch more east as we move along. Let's move on to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read just the first nine verses. A lot of this is going to be revisited in the next coming chapters. So don't don't think we've skipped over stuff. The man had sexual relations with Havah, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have acquired a man from Adonai. In addition, she gave birth to his brother Hevel. Hevel kept sheep while Cain worked the soil. And in short, short uh, pardon me, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to Adonai from the produce of the soil, and Hevel too brought from the firstborn of his sheep, including their fat. Adonai accepted Hevel in his offering, but he did not accept Cain in his offering. Cain was very angry. His face fell. And Adonai said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why so downcast? If you're doing what is good, shouldn't you hold your head high? And if you don't do what is good, sin is crouching at the door. It wants you. But you can rule over it. Cain had words with Abel, his brother. Then one time when they were in the field, Cain turned on Abel, his brother, and killed him. Adonai said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he replied, I don't know. Am I, am I my brother's guardian? Here we have Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Hava, And we have the first recorded murder. Although by now... There apparently were many inhabitants on earth, so this may not have been the first killing of a human. But before that event, we are witness to God accepting one sacrifice, pardon me, an animal, but not another. Food from the earth, plants. Once again, God reinforces the fundamental that only innocent blood is suitable for atonement. Now, Hebrew names have great significance. The ancients tended to name their children after some event or attribute or or maybe even a hope that was of current significance to that family. So it works to our advantage to learn what these various biblical 
names meant because it gives us an insight into both the mindset of the people and into the events that were shaping their lives. To be clear though, Cain, follow me, was not a Hebrew because it would be hundreds of years after the forthcoming great flood before the first person designated as a Hebrew would come to exist. So what we're really talking about here is the forerunner of the Hebrew language, not the Hebrew race. Now, Cain, Hebrew for Cain, meant acquired from God. It appears that Cain was probably Adam and Eve's first child, and because it was a male child, and because of the name Eve gave to him, it appears that Eve made this connection that we read about we read about rather a little earlier concerning how Eve's seed would bruise the head of the serpent's seed. She must have logically concluded that this was the man that was going to deal with the serpent serpent Satan. We're also told that Cain was a farmer. Next to be born was Abel, Hevel. Hevel was a shepherd. There's some disagreement as to what the significance of the name Hevel is. Some scholars say they can deduce nothing from it. Others say that Abel is taken from the Hebrew word Hevel, which means vapor or breath carries with it a sense of being transitory, here for a moment and then gone. Now we're told precious little about either brother, but we do know that there was a time in which they were summoned by God to present present an offering, a sacrifice to him. As there was no sense of surprise or unexpectedness assigned to verse 3, bringing a sacrifice to the Lord was probably a regular event. At least this was not the first time a sacrifice for the Lord had taken place. Likely the altar where the sacrifice took place was located at the entry to the Garden of Eden because they wouldn't have been allowed into the area where God dwelled, the Garden. We're told that God accepts the offering, that God accepts the offering of a slain firstborn sheep from Abel but rejects the plants that Cain brought. The question here, of course, is why did God rebuff Cain's offering? A couple of very likely possibilities. First, it was likely that the particular kind of sacrifice offered was either a burnt offering or a purification offering. In Hebrew, an olah and a hatat. And the only suitable sacrifice for God uh, before God for either of these two types of sacrifices, is life. Innocent animal life, which is exactly what we're told Havel brought for his offering. Now it's near certain that all the rituals and requirements we find in Leviticus for sacrificing was was not involved with this. It was simpler and straightforward. There's no mention of a mediator or a priest of some sort here. But the point is, that these two brothers would have known full well what God expected of them because they grew up with it. Long before these two were born, God had given their parents that command and instruction by way of the animal skins. That 
he required Adam and Eve to wear for clothing, a covering. They were reminded of how sacrifices operated 24 hours a day. Another interesting facet of the sacrificial issue concerns the nature of the produce from the field that Cain brought. It was ordinary. Genesis 4.3 In the course of time Cain brought an offering to Adonai of the produce of the soil and Abel too brought from the firstborn of his sheep. Abel's sacrifice, you see, was the more valuable firstborn. That firstborn's a key word. But as for Cain's produce of the soil, there's no mention of it being first fruits or the best or anything that would make it set apart from any of the other produce. Now the sages don't fully agree on the nature of the defect of Cain's offering. Some say he shouldn't have brought plant life at all, that he should have brought an animal. Others say the problem was the haughty, non-repentant attitude he brought his offering with, with, which isn't really described anywhere in it at all. Still others cite what we just discussed. It was just ordinary produce. It wasn't the best, which is a must if it's to be offered to God. Let's remember that at this time, man was to eat only plants not animals. Therefore, the purpose for sheep, think about that, in this era, was not for meat. It was only for two things. Sacrifice and covering. That's it. The animals Abel was producing could have served no other purpose than as a service to God and for the wool or skins for clothing, maybe tents. So we could further combine these two purposes for sheep under just one title. Covering. It's all it was for. You see this? The sheep, the lamb, was to provide covering, clothing, over man's physical nakedness, and it was also to provide covering by means of its own blood, for man's spiritual nakedness, his sin. But never was it meant for nourishment. It was not meant for food. We'll continue with this chapter next time.